Hello, dear listeners, especially those of you considering writing memoir or personal story or already toiling away at it. Every spring and fall, I teach a memoir intensive with Linda Joy Myers of the National Association of Memoir Writers. This spring's class begins appropriately on March 4th. It's called The Evolution of Memoir. It's a four-week series focused on some of the updates, changes, and evolutions we're seeing in memoir, and it includes time for questions and time to write. Classes will focus on new and evolving structures and techniques using time and space more freely and layers of meaning. We've been living through a memoir revolution, and this class aims to explore and showcase what's been going on out there in the world, complete with a list of recommended reading for books that we'll be covering in class. We invite you to march forth with us into this March and spring beyond. Join us for the evolution of memoir. Details can be found at magicofmemoir.com and on with the show. Hello, story holders, story extractors, and story grapplers. I'm Brooke Warner, here as always with my favorite weekly chat partner, Grant Faulkner. Grant, we get to talk about self-revelation today, which is a cornerstone of memoir, but it's also a cornerstone of being a podcast host sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And in the line of work we do, because there's a lot of putting ourselves out there that needs to happen, and by ourselves, I mean you and me, but also the collective ourselves, uh, I'm inviting the audience into this collective we are experienced to think about self-revelation. But before we get too far into it, are you ready to self-reveal today? Well, Brooke, I, I believe I need to remind you that I'm a repressed, taciturn Midwesterner who comes from generations of repressed, taciturn Midwesterners. So I'm, I'm likely not ready to self-reveal, but I'll do my best. But seriously, though, as I, I like to say that vulnerability is the main ingredient of good storytelling. So, so despite my heritage, I'm often thinking about and aiming for self-revelation. And I think you do a pretty good job, especially <laughs> given you. that baggage and background that you're bringing. Um, but the reason that I am choosing this topic is because our guest, Brian H. Williams, reads very much like a stoic guy in his memoir. He's a doctor, a trauma surgeon, to be precise. And he writes often in this memoir, The Bodies Keep Coming, about being a man of few words, about how his wife is always trying to get him to open up and be more expressive and share his feelings. And I loved his articulation of this because when we have men in our memoir classes, and I'm going to say they are few and far between, They struggle often more than their female counterparts with this very pervasive point of feedback in memoir, which is, how did that make you feel? (laughs) And I hate to stereotype because, of course, there are plenty of men who articulate how they feel, but men more than women seem to struggle with this. And I think, obviously, in part, it's a culturally imposed limitation on men. Men are less encouraged to express and articulate their feelings. And so whether they have it or lose it, uh, it does get suppressed. And what happens when men start to write memoir is that the emotional interiority all of a sudden gets a floodlight shined on it. And in my experience, when male students lean in and really start to do this, the results are not only gratifying, it's kind of like a coming home to the self in a way. And I'm excited because Brian really gets into this in our interview. Uh, So I'm going to pause here, Grant, to hear your male perspective. (laughs) Uh, We do spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about women and women's topics, and we tilt toward having more female guests for lots of reasons. Uh, But what do you think about this culture, you know, that maybe discourages boys, does discourage boys and then men to be uh, expressive with their feelings and, and memoir obviously rebukes this. So that makes it maybe a little bit more difficult. 
Yeah, I was actually recently talking about this with a friend and, and I was telling her how I've noticed when I teach a writing class, the class is usually about 80% women. And and that actually tracks with novel reading data as well. Uh, I think women buy 80% of the novels that are sold. So, so men essentially stop reading fiction more and more the older they get. And they actually read less and less in general. And then what they do read tends to be nonfiction, but it's usually things like maybe history or business books. So, so not memoir, not books that are necessarily like self-reflective or, or, or intimate. So I asked my friend, you know, what's up with men? <laughs> I see so many women exploring themselves and working on themselves, but I rarely see men doing this. And her answer was kind of flip. She said they go fishing, which was funny. It may be accurate, but also troubling to me. Um, and I do think that our culture obviously plays some role because I remember thinking that it was wrong to cry from a very young age and, and doing so publicly was an embarrassing act for a boy. And maybe this stoic culture somehow carries over to reading and writing and general expression. I mean, why don't men read no novels? You know, I mean, we're all storytelling creatures. We all like a good story. So, so I don't know why they tend to prefer fishing, as my friend put it, you know, or, or why do they tend to explore themselves less and work on themselves less? I'm a man and I don't really have the answers. I've even wondered if our brains are, are wired differently when it comes to, to reading and writing fiction or, or just expressing oneself. Uh, but I think there are really cultural things at work that we might not even notice. There are, because I see it in my six-month class. Brian is an alumni of my six-month class, and that's one of the reasons that it's moving to me to bring him on to Right Minded this week. And, you know, we get a lot of students who sign up for this class, uh, few men, fewer men, but we do find it very much to be kind of a through line through all the men in class that these questions of, of self-revealing, you know, of, of getting deeper is hard. I mean, and they'll say things like, actually, I don't know how. Uh, and you just have to keep working at that. And, you know, what Brian reveals in this book about being a trauma surgeon, notably a black trauma surgeon, is an indictment into our culture. But what he says in the interview is so powerful, which is like he had to get in touch with his anger. And I think people feel scared about what they're going to reveal on the page. You know, I'm imagining that he felt that if he was too angry, he's kind of contributing to stereotypes. And yet, you know, that anger is this palpable force in the book and coming to terms with it. Like you're angry too, as you're reading about the things that he's sharing about what he sees in trauma. So it's, it's a big deal. I found this book so powerful for hearing about the work that he does, did on gunshot victims. Um, you know, we sit here and we hear about the news and we cringe every time there's another shooting and we rage, you know, speaking of rage at the fact that there's so little to be done to stem the tide of this social disease, but we don't get to hear from people on the front lines as often as we should. And so I just really want to make a plug for this book because I was riveted, uh, even as I was disturbed and shocked and upset. And this is the power of good memoir, right? I mean, it opens your eyes, your heart, both. It opens your spirit. And so reading the passage of, of this book, you know, for me, because it's like Brian said, well, I didn't want it to be about me, but he is the vehicle to tell this story, right? And he is talking about what it's like to be a trauma surgeon on the front lines and the adrenaline that he gets when he saves these people, the thrill of the job, the obsession of the job, but also just how dark and disturbing is at the same time because he's reckoning with racism, exposing injustices. And yeah, I mean, this is just one of those books that's going to stay with me. And he, he really did everything right. 
he really puts us into the issue deeply. And, you know, I recently heard a San Francisco doctor talk about this and, and how black women are much more likely to experience complications during pregnancy and childbirth and then die from these complications than white women. And this is happening in San Francisco, a city that strives for equity and, you know, and, and also the rest of the world. And I actually looked up the stat and the, and the data tells the story. Black women are three times more likely to die from a pregnancy-related cause than white women. And that's because of the different quality of health care they get, which is caused by structural racism and implicit bias, among other things. But it's, it's Brian explores that on a whole different, uh, with a whole different lens. Yeah, exactly. Well, and perfect word, right? Lens, because we are talking about self-revelation today and it's the lens through which you see the world and then offering readers to step into your lens and see the world through what you see. And I'd love Grant to know what you think is the most revealing thing you've ever written, you know, whether in fiction or a personal essay or post, like what would you share with our listeners about that experience in terms of what it might've been like or how it was received or what you learned about yourself and your writing in the process? I love this. The most self-revelatory thing <laughs> I've ever written. Get ever. Ready. Get, get ready. Uh, no, I'm not going to share the most self-revelatory thing, actually, but <laughs> I'm, not sure that, I'm not sure what that is, actually. I really have to go away for a weekend retreat to figure that out. But I, I do want to say first that writing fiction gives a writer a shield because personal experiences are transformed into a made-up story with fictional characters. So self-revelation happens, but it's a different thing for a fiction writer. Um, it's fraught, though, because readers often mistake fiction for truth. And I've had people assume that what happens in my stories has happened to me, and they're often or usually wrong. So it bothers me that people read fiction as a way to make assumption, assumptions about a writer's life. But in terms of self-revelation, the reason I mentioned this is because it's been on my mind. Um, a magazine called Past 10 asked me to write a piece for them. And what they do is they assign you a day from 10 years ago, and you have to remember that day and write about it. And it was a really interesting exercise. But it, it was not a deep confessional piece, per se. But that said, I don't usually publish personal essays. So the fact of publishing this personal essay kind of put pressure on me because I included these, these brief characterizations of my family. And I, once it was published, I had to wonder how they felt about those characterizations. So I suppose I should have sent them the piece before publishing it. And then also at the end of the piece, I, I revealed my heart problems, which I actually haven't told my mom about for a variety of reasons. So I got paranoid that if I promoted it on Facebook, then she might hear about it from someone else. So I ended up not even promoting the piece. So, so writing that, and this was like, again, not a seriously confessional piece per se, but it attuned me to a lot of the issues we talk about here, you know, how writing memoir and publishing it opens yourself up to uncomfortableness, you know, just that's the fact of it, because you're portraying people who didn't ask to be portrayed. And, and then who are you to, you know, characterize them in ways they might not like. So I, I totally understand why so many people decide to write memoirs after everyone's dead. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that said, I also learned that self-revelation and vulnerability, you know, they take practice and they take practice when you move into different spaces and different genres. Yeah. And the more you do it, I think the easier it gets. And, but still all of those considerations that you just talked about weigh heavily when it comes to personal writing. I wrote a piece about my dad before he died. That wasn't incredibly flattering to him. You know, that was about some financial stuff that I was reckoning with in his last couple years of life. And I went through all the feelings of what he might think about it. Would he be upset? It's still not published, so he'll never read it. But now I really want to get it published because I think it's meaningful. But of course, I'm grappling with it in like such a less 
poignant way now that he's gone. And so I think you're right. You know, I mean, it is why some of us hold back uh, until people aren't with us anymore, sometimes to get things out. Uh, for yeah, there's all the things, right? I mean, the fear of what people will think or what people will discover about us. And it's just a reckoning. And so I appreciate so much how Brian tackles this in his book. I mean, I think anyone who reads it will take, of course, so much about the gun violence epidemic from the book. But I think for those who want to see an exercise in self-revelation, you'll get so much out of this book. So I do just highly recommend it. It's a, a good model. So I'm looking forward to hearing from Brian and his insights on this very important topic of self-revelation and more. We will be back in a GIF. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Welcome back, everyone. I am so pleased to introduce Brian H. Williams, Dr. Brian H. Williams, an Air Force Academy graduate, Harvard-trained surgeon, a former congressional health policy advisor, and a nationally recognized leader at the intersection of public policy and structural racism, gun violence, and health equity. He has treated gun violence victims for more than two decades. Brian has served as a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellow at the National Academy of Medicine and as a professor of trauma and acute care surgery at the University of Chicago Medicine. His new memoir, The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal, came out in September of last year. And Brian, as I said, I mean, it's a beautifully written book, but it's an important book. So thank you for coming on the show to talk to us about it today. No, thank you for having me. It's a tremendous honor. I've been a fan of the show for years. Well, thank you for that, too. This is a kind of full circle moment for me. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about your book. But I wanted to just say, you know, I talked with Grant before we brought you on uh, about the fact that you've written the kind of book that I can't stop thinking about, and I've talked to some of my friends about it since finishing it, you know, this epidemic of gun violence is such a pervasive thing in our culture. You lay bare what it's like to be on the front lines in a way that is historically been part of your everyday. I mean, it, it still is. But to an average person like me who rarely even sees a minor wound in my day to day, this book is really eye-opening. And you know, your Amazon copy says, he draws a through line between white supremacy, gun violence, and the bodies he tries to revive. And he trains his surgeon's gaze on the structural issues that manifest themselves in the bodies of his patients. What if racism is a feature of our healthcare system, not a bug? What if profiting from racial inequity is exactly what it was designed to do? So with this long preamble, could you talk about why you wrote the book and, you know, tell us about the call to tell this story. 
Yeah, I, I wrote this book it really as a call to action for everyone to really take a look at these larger issues uh, that we're dealing with in society right now, gun violence, uh, structural racism, talk about it through the lens of, of health care. Uh, but I wanted to pull people into the story and it's deeply personal use storytelling to make you feel like you were there and see these things through my eyes. Uh, but along the way, learn about bigger issues so we can address those. So as a trauma surgeon who's been on the front lines of gun violence for, for decades and been trying to end this epidemic, I wanted you to feel what it's like to be in the trauma center when someone comes in near death, to feel what it's like to have to sit across from strangers, frequently parents, and deliver this bad news, and what it means to me as, as a Black trauma surgeon to take care of so many uh, bullet-ridden Black men and what that meant uh, for me as a person and, and, and as, a, as a doctor. But then to turn it outward and say, okay, what's happening in society beyond the hospital that we collectively can address that will stop the flow, but also look at other much larger issues in, in the country? Brian, you're, you're personally revealing in this memoir, and that's a requirement of the genre, of course, but also you make a point in your book to talk about the fact that you're a pretty reserved private person. And there's actually a, a powerful anecdote in the book where you write that even though you and your wife had been married for seven years and together for 11, she didn't know that you were afraid of the police. And so I was wondering, can, can you tell us more about how a person with your level of reserve, you know, if, if that's even what you'd call it, manages to write a memoir this revealing and this personal? And, and what was that process like for you? Uh, my wife is very helpful in that. She's a key character in the book, and she's the voice of reason at certain key decision points in the story, but also in my life. So I give her a lot of credit for pulling that out from me. The first few versions of the book, I, I definitely was censoring myself. Uh, I, I was pulling things back. And this is what helped my, my editor and my agent help me to say, you know, you know, one said, Brian, it's obvious you're holding things back. You, you need to let it out. So I had to make flip a switch and decide to myself, okay, write this book as if no one will ever read it. Just get that all on the on the page and go from there. And that was where I was able to just put out all my different feelings. You know, I, I, I expose myself, right? I fillet myself open and then expose myself. And for someone like me, who people I think view differently, Black man, trauma surgeon, Air Force officer, uh, highly accomplished, to put that out there, that was a dichotomy uh, I felt would actually lend to larger discussions and uh, bring people into the, oh, this is interesting. If he can talk about this in this way, let's finish this book and see what he has to say and bring me into the discussion about these larger issues. It was uh, not an easy process, but I felt in the end when I was done, I, you know, I just felt sort of cleansed. There was a cleansing for that, uh, and I felt... Um, that it led to a very strong story, just not from the memoir part, but also for the issues I wanted to discuss uh, beyond me. Because in the end, I didn't want it to be about me. I wanted you to push the book down and think about uh, these other issues that are happening in society. And, and it's interesting how it's both, right? Because it's you, you accomplished that, but I felt that the story was so much better developed because of the intimacy that you were able to access. So I, I do want to just say that aloud for other people who are struggling with accessing the emotions. Doing that, 
you know, you know, I talk about this in my book where I went to uh, went to therapy, and I'm sitting there, and this therapist is, you know, asking me questions. I'm only I'm the one asking the questions, and she was the one that said, you know, you need to go back to the night, the shooting, the the pivotal night in the book where um, we had uh, 14 police officers shot in Dallas, and seven of whom I cared for, and, and three died on my watch, and it was a night that nearly broke me, and. That was, I carried a lot of shame and grief after that. And she said, you need to go back to the night and just do a trauma narrative. Just kind of write it out what happened that night and what you saw, felt, smelled, heard. And I did that. It was a few hundred words. And from there, that unlocked so much um, that I wanted to do going going forward. And uh, I just felt I was able to not be so concerned about what people thought about me as long as it was able to get people thinking about the people I was caring for that are frequently forgotten, uh, what's happening on in society that we can actually do to to end the needless death and suffering. If that was the uh, quote unquote price I had to pay for it, it was well worth it. This is just such a powerful book. And I, I wanted to ask about this procedure. I don't even know if I am pronouncing the procedure correctly. Thoracotomy. 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 It's central to the book. Uh, you write about it a lot. And essentially, it's a last ditch and quite brutal and intrusive medical procedure that is supposed to save lives. But the more I read of your book, the more I saw it doesn't really save lives. And I'd like for you to share more about this because it's kind of a damning part of the book um, in that you suggest that this is a practice for surgeons on bodies that have almost no chance of making it. And so I felt you wrestling with that. And I wondered if you would share more. And does anyone survive a thoracotomy? <laughs> great try, bro. Great, great try. <laughs> so this is a procedure called an ED thoracotomy. ED stands for emergency department, thoracotomy, uh, thor- thorax, that's what your chest and cotomy just means to, to cut. So thoracotomy. Mm, thank and you. this is a emergency procedure that trauma surgeons do for, for people that are near death from penetrating injuries to the chest. So gunshot wounds and stabs, but frequently from gunshot wounds. So the odd, the, the, the goal is to do what we can to, to save their life in the ED. So we can take them to the OR to do the uh, definitive slightly procedure. You have to decide this within seconds of them arriving. Are you going to do this or not? But what it involves is about a foot long incision on the left side of your chest uh, through between two ribs. So you can get access to the cavity and see the heart and the lungs, a very invasive procedure. And I use that to talk about how we frequently do these on young black men because young black men are uh, the victims of gun violence homicides. But within 24 hours of this episode, 50% of the uh, homicides due to firearms will be to, to young, young black men. So we're, we're doing this procedure on them, but the, the survivability is abysmal. Very few people survive this, and those that do have usually have permanent neurological damage. So the question I'm wrestling with is, why do we do this procedure all the time when their results are so low? And then on top of that, we're doing this on young black men who have no say in the matter. And as a trauma surgeon who's taught the next generation of surgeons, we teach this to future surgeons as well who are doing it. So it becomes a means of, of practicing a procedure that has little hopes of saving a life, but we do this over and over again. 
So I'm wrestling with the procedure itself, what it meant to me as a black doctor doing this on young black men and telling this to their families. Uh, but then also what that meant for healthcare as a whole, like just keep pulling out the lens, this procedure to being a trauma surgeon, teaching it to healthcare as a whole and how we have such tremendous disparities in race and race uh, through healthcare that date back generations. Why do they persist? How can we do something different about that? And that was the goal is to like, what can we do moving forward? Like to be hopeful and healing, look forward to make a change. Yeah, Brian, that's really a good segue to, to my next question, which, which goes deeper with this. Um, because the epidemic of gun violence is at the center of your book, and you write toward the end, reducing gun violence is not only a matter of life or death, it is a matter of racial justice. And, and you go on to give the statistics about how many more black people lose their lives to gun violence compared to other races. And then your book ends on some additional, you know, really profound self-disclosures about your, your feelings about trauma surgery and how you, you ultimately transitioned out. And you also share about your rage and, and, and about your plea that we stop this flood of bodies that just keeps coming. And I, and I hear that in your voice now, in fact, and so I'm curious the, the book has been out since September. And so I'm curious to know your thoughts on, on writing a memoir and memoir as a tool to get the message out or a call for action. What, what has this been like for you so far? I, I had a lot of fun writing this book and Brooke, I don't know if you remember, I took your write your I very much remember. Yeah, yeah, that's why I said full circle moment. Yeah, it's so fabulous. I, I started back then. You probably remember the very early pages of this and how this has transformed over the time. I really, really enjoyed the process of learning how to write in scene and getting to play with language and move sections around. Uh, the editing was my favorite part of this entire, entire process. But it's also a process of self-discovery, right? What am I willing to reveal about myself to strangers? Uh, increased you know, connection and communication with my, my wife and uh, with my family. Um, how I'll use this book to be part of the discussion uh, about how we create justice in society. It's, uh, we have a role in that and um, it's not some far off goal. We could do the work today to create justice for everyone. Uh, if the best time to plant a tree is 10 years ago, uh, if we don't create justice, we need to start the work right now. So in, in writing the book, my, my hope was that when people finished the book, they were not thinking about me. Uh, even on the character in this book, it was about something I learned after going through all this stuff. And at the end, you should put it down and think about the, uh, the, the last chapter that I wrote, that, that last patient, and then think about what you were going to do going forward. How do you see the world uh, differently? Um, so it was a joy. I already have an idea for my, for my next book. <laughs> uh, I'm, really in, I'm really into this now. As someone who never thought they would write a book, that was never part of my life plan. Uh, this has been a transformative experience for me. Well, thank you for mentioning that about my six month class. And, you know, in reading it, I was just like, oh, my goodness, he's taken the craft so seriously. I mean, in addition to it being important, you're doing all of the things, you know, you're being self revealing the craft, the scenes, the takeaway, it's all exemplary. So again, congratulations. And I, I wanted to ask you specifically in closing about what you feel looking back 
were the most helpful steps you took toward your journey to publication. And also, since we're talking about the class, you know that Linda Joy and I wax poetic about Mary Carr. You got a <laughs> cover blurb from Mary Carr. So I thought, you know, in addition to this publication journey answer, if you would mention how you managed to secure that. She pretty notoriously doesn't blurb that often. So you must have done something quite right. I, I reached out to Mary Carr because we were following each other on Twitter. Um, when she followed me, I was starstruck. I'm like, oh my, oh my gosh, Mary Carr is following me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so after I finished the book and was ready to go out for the early edition or early reviews, I thought, well, I can't hurt. The worst she's going to do is say no, right? So I sent her a, a Twitter DM and said, I have this book. I'd be honored if you really, you know, I've read all of your books. Uh, she was part of the, she was part of my research, reading her books about structure and language. Um, and she replied and said, yes, and uh, did, did it. And then it became a cover blurb. And I was like, this is just, I mean, that was enough. At that point, <laughs> like finishing the book and having her cover blurb was enough. Everything after that, this is just gravy. Uh, having people send me emails, uh, text messages, having to read the book asking people to sign the book, wanting to talk about it. Uh, this is what I wanted to be a part of. Like, how do we get together and have these hard discussions about very difficult and emotionally charged subjects, uh, but work towards how we can breed connection, uh, create justice, and work towards healing. That was the end goal, for this to be hopeful at the end, despite all the heaviness leading up to that point. I, I love all of that. Well, and, and before we end, just in terms of takeaway for our listeners, like, is there one thing that you feel like this was it? You know, is it your editorial relationship? Was it, you know, digging deep with your wife? What do you think really made the difference for you? I think the made the difference for me in being able to reveal myself in this book was just coming to terms with my own uh, internalized anger I've had for a long time time. Uh, I did not realize how self-destructive that was and how that would let me to put up barriers between everyone around me. And, and writing the book, I came to realize that that doesn't have to hold me back. I can channel that and fuel that into doing good. And I know that sounds may sound uh, like a, a strange dichotomy because I've done all this work as a doctor and as uh, serving in the Air Force and, you know, all the things that people look to that define success, uh, still I felt there was more to do. And part of it had to be me looking inwards to be more effective, uh, uh, having change outwards. Perfect note to end on. Thank you, Brian. Thank you very much for having me. This is such an honor to be here. I, I'm glad I had a chance to meet you both. Appreciate it. Thank you, Brian. Likewise. We'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Well, Grant, this week's trend is right up my alley, probably because I think about blurbs, also known as endorsements, more than the average person, but as much as the average publisher. And I was pleased to see The Atlantic tackle this issue recently in a piece called 
the blurb problem keeps getting worse. It appealed to me because there actually is a blurb problem. Uh, and so I feel like, you know, we ought to cover it and tell our listeners what it's about, why it's a problem. Grant, you're an author. Uh, so before we get into the problem, what's your take on blurbs? You know, why do they matter? And do you think they matter? Well, secretly, I hate blurbs simply because (laughs) I have to inconvenience someone to write a blurb. And that person, you know, is often like a famous author who I might not know so well. And sometimes not at all, actually. I've reached out to people who I don't know. And so it's tough to inconvenience somebody in that way. Um, But it's important to get blurbs from such people because the publisher, you know, says it's important. And I actually, when I think of my own self in a bookstore, I read the blurbs of a book, even though I know they're basically marketing copy. So, but, you know, so I think blurbs are effective in their way. Um, And even though it's, it's a major thing for me to ask other authors for blurbs, I'm, I'm just constantly touched by authors generosity because it takes time to write you know they're tiny paragraphs but it takes time you know it takes takes me time at least um and you know getting these blurbs it's interesting too what they do for you psychologically because they've helped me believe in my own book more once once uh, an author blurbs it for you and and you asked me to share one so here's my favorite and this comes comes from lydia yuknovich who i i really bonded with when we interviewed her here on right minded and she said this is for my book all the comfort sin can provide and i had to write her several times and kind of remind her <laughs> nudging and, and nag and nudge and it just felt horrible doing so but, but she, then she sent me this blurb that just is is wonderful so she says, somewhere between sinister and gleeful, the characters in Grant Faulkner's story collection, all the comforts and can provide blow open pleasure, guilty pleasure, unapologetic pleasure, accidental pleasure, repressed pleasure. Really at the heart of all identity is the reach for pleasure. And then what actually comes, all those moments of slippage where we do the wrong thing, take a ridiculous risk, double down on failure, land in a forsaken place, slip the mainstream of things enough to change and become These characters exude beauty from their flaws. These stories are lit. Beautiful. She actually captures the book better than I could. That's that's all I aspire to. You're like, can that be my Amazon copy? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I mean, I was overjoyed uh, to receive that. But, you know, there's also a dark side, too. And that's what The Atlantic was covering. And I'm imagining most of the issues that were revealed in that piece, you know, you've already seen play out in practice, Brooke. Yeah, that's true. I mean, those issues aside from, you know, the the beautiful truth that these blurbs are powerful and helpful in all the ways, but they're talking about things that I absolutely grapple with as a publisher, right? Like the general dilution of blurbs effectiveness and importance because they're just too many and they kind of say the same things. What I love about Lydia's is how beautifully personal it is. And it's clear that she read the book and then crafted something lovely. I mean, a lot of people are just like, it's a great book. It's a page turner. And they, those can just start to almost be meaningless. Uh, the piece, the Atlantic piece also talked about cronyism and corruption, big words for something regarding uh, something as simple as a blurb, but the practice does elicit a lot of desperate behavior. Uh, you know, people blurb their friends, of course, so that's cronyism, but what they were writing about is like people are trading blurbs for money or gifts. Uh, and sometimes people do just gift their blurbers out of true appreciation. Certainly that's not corrupt, but there are ethical considerations if you're paying for blurbs, for sure. Uh, on the other hand, you know, the expectation that people should read other people's books just out of the goodness of their own heart when they don't even know the person, I think, is a lot to ask. It takes time to read books. Um yeah. So I don't know. I mean, there's just, there's a lot of questionable behavior. That's, I guess, what they're trying to get into. And just like the fact that it's 
part of what's expected to be an author puts into question, you know, should we keep doing it? Yeah. And mentioning gifts, for instance, like I, I actually do give it a gift after I get a blurb, um, but it's really a kind of token gift. Uh, I, I always do just give a gift certificate to a local indie bookstore. So it's I don't view it as transactional or bribery or anything like that. Um, the blurber doesn't know what's coming. Um, but one of the things the Atlantic did not cover, and I know this is a particular pet peeve of yours, Brooke, is this this aforementioned dilution effect. And the piece covered some of the effusive words on book jackets, you know, and how they start to become meaningless. Words like electrifying and essential, profound, masterpiece, vital, important, compelling, revelatory. But you told me recently that you have recently curbed the practice on She Writes Press and Spark Press books of allowing blurbers to loosely use terms like bestseller on their attributions. So I was wondering if you can say more about why you implemented this practice or why it was necessary. Yeah, I think that's why I appreciated the Atlantic article, uh, you know, putting their thumb on this whole practice as potentially problematic besides uh, all the effusive praise that you're talking about. Um, and the fact that authors and publishers, too, are expected to have blurbs on their books. Uh, you know, the authors who do the blurbing often inflate their credentials. And so it was getting to the point for us where like I would look at an author's back cover copy and there would be four or five blurbs and every single blurber people I had never heard of were best selling and award winning. <laughs> yeah, we all are. Yeah. And every, yeah, I mean, which is wonderful. Right. But it's like, it, it begs the question. Yeah. Like, okay, best selling in what capacity? And I don't mean to discount the value of awards, but there are a lot of awards programs out there and authors do submit far and wide and there are lots of contests, you know, so it just starts to feel tiring. Um, and so we implemented a policy where those awards and uh, best-selling credentials actually need to be qualified. So New York Times best-selling, or if it's an award, they have to say what what award it is. Uh, and some of my authors do not like this practice, um, but I feel better about it because I feel like we're at least putting some guardrails on this whole thing that really starts to feel a little bit out of control. Yeah, I know a lot of authors who have stopped the practice of blurbing altogether, and, and, and that's out of necessity because I get you know, too many requests, and, and I sympathize because I think I have so much karmic blurb debt because of the blurbs that have been written for me, like Lydia's, that I, that I say yes to a lot of requests, and, and then they're hard to fulfill and, 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 and kind of annoying because they just, you know, they stay on your to-do list and it's tough to get to them. Uh, and authors, you know, especially beloved ones with big fan bases, they definitely can get overwhelmed and inundated by these requests. But at the same time, I'm aligned with Mark Richards, who's, who's the publisher of Swift Publishing, and he's quoted in the piece as saying that blurbers are good literary citizens. And so I, I think the practice of completely shutting yourself off to blurbs should maybe be more like a, a quota, you know, like a blurb a year or two or three at max. But Brooke, given your feelings that blurbing is a problem, would you be in favor of eradicating the process altogether? Uh, it's such a hard one to answer because on the one hand, I believe it would actually be better for authors if it were a policy that you could implement across the board. There's so much distress over blurbs. That's my experience as a publisher. A lot of competition, a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of what you said, the dread of having to ask people that you don't know. Hmm. Uh, and when my authors don't hear from people or someone says no, it introduces doubt into their process. It makes them feel less than, you know, conversely, you have the experience like you did where a single author 
where like Lydia Yuknovich makes you feel like you're on cloud nine, you know, and in some situations I've also found like it creates feelings of superiority. Mm. So it's like a crazy thing that I would sort of like to just remove from the process. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, I can't imagine what books would look like without blurbs. Like they actually take up a lot of space on book covers and sales reps genuinely care about them. So it's not really a reality that we would just be able to eradicate it altogether. We're kind of stuck with them. Uh, and, you know, sometimes I get excited by them too. <laughs> like I pay attention to them. So I guess we just have to deal with the fact that it's a problem and uh, and carry on. Deal with it and keep complaining about it. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure there is a solution to this problem either. You know, we, we, we but, but, you know, I've been thinking about it. We actually ask our listeners to blurb us by posting comments about Ryan Minded. <laughs> we sure do. So, so listener, I just want to give you a few words to think about using in your reviews, words such as electrifying, <laughs> essential, profound, masterpiece, vital, important, compelling, and revelatory. Um, and I ask you that because we try to be all of that every week. So please keep tuning in. You're essential, vital, and profound to us. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>